focusing on is love. Just want to remind you again that our Christmas Eve service will be online only this year as well as our services on Sunday December 27th and Sunday January the 3rd. We will not be hosting in-person services on those Sundays. So that's it for now except to wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas. God bless all of you. He's not known in the city streets. There's nothing about his face or appearance that would draw others to him. He lives as one without a home, migrating from hill to hill. He is as weathered and hard as the stony hills of Judea on which he tends his flock. His sheep know him. They recognize his face, follow his voice, respond to his touch. In the morning, he leads them out to green pastures. In the heat of the day, he rests them beside still waters. In the evening, he counts them, calling each one by name, attending to their wounds with oil and comfort. At night, he lies down in the mouth of the sheepfold, his body becoming the door, the only source of protection against the elements and enemies outside. His eyes are keen, able to scan the horizon by day and penetrate the darkness by night. His ears are sharp, alert to the sound of danger and the individual cry of a wandering sheep. His shoulders are strong, bearing the burden of the young and the weak who can no longer bear the journey. It is to him the angels come. It is to him the message is given, and he responds. Through the little town that knows not his name, from house to house he moves, bearing the burden of love, willing to share it with those who will listen. A savior has been born, a shepherd who will give his life for his sheep, a lamb who will give his life for the shepherds. For the child of the stable is the shepherd of love. Fountain, and fountain, following 
scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word.
Surviving Christmas is a 2004 Christmas movie about a wealthy advertising executive named Drew who is facing the Christmas season without anyone to spend Christmas with. His father walked out on him when he was just four years old at Christmas time, and his mom passed away when he was in college. Desperate to not be alone, he began to call every name in his contact list, but without success. He then visits his childhood home and offers to pay the family who are now living there $250,000 if they will let him spend Christmas with them and pretend to be his family. Now, even though it's an unusual request, $250,000 is a lot of money, and so the family agrees. While they are trimming the tree, the family's oldest daughter, Alicia, arrives home for Christmas to find this stranger front and center in her family's Christmas celebrations. Stunned by his presence, she asks, who is this person? Why is this person here? They shouldn't be here in our Christmas story. Well, this question could easily be asked when we read Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. There are characters, there are people included in God's story of the coming of the Messiah that at first glance seem to be out of place. They have no reason, if you will, to be there. Yet their inclusion in God's story is a reminder to all of us who read this story of the all-encompassing love of God that is central to Christ's first advent. John 3.16 reminds us that it is God's love for the world, for everyone, that is the primary motivation of the coming of Emmanuel. Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And the theme we're focusing on today is love. Today, we're going to consider some of the characters that seemingly shouldn't be a part of God's story, but because of God's love for all, they figure prominently in his story. And we will be reminded today, the love of God is so inclusive that those who are deemed to be unworthy recipients are embraced and invited into God's story. There are two groups mentioned in Matthew's account, those who are referenced in the opening genealogy in chapter 1, and a group of magi who are mentioned in chapter 2. And we're going to look at both groups today. Let's begin by looking at the genealogy. The Gospel of Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. His purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the hope of Israel. And so Matthew opens his gospel with an overview list of Jesus' ancestors, a genealogy that begins with Abraham and ends with Jesus. He wants to establish at the outset of his gospel the validity of Jesus in the line of David. Now, there are two observations that I'd like to make today. One is, Ancient genealogies typically only included men. And secondly, the purpose of Jewish genealogies was to underline the purity of one's Israelite lineage. No Gentile contamination. Now, interestingly, Matthew, who is writing to Jews, 
not only includes four women, which is rare, but three of the women are Gentiles and one is a widow of a Gentile. So let's just quickly look at each of these women. The first is Tamar, and we see her story in Genesis chapter 38. Judah, the son of Jacob, married a Canaanite girl and had three sons. And those sons were influenced by their mother's culture. One son married a Canaanite girl named Tamar. We're told that he was wicked and he died at an early age without an heir. The cultural practice at this time was for the oldest son to marry the widow and the children born to them would actually be considered to be the heirs of the deceased. But the next son refused his responsibility. He wanted his own children and we are told that he too was wicked and he too died at a young age. And so there's only one son left. Now Judah, his father, is slow to act in this situation. He's lost two sons and he's very apprehensive to move forward with this third. And so he made an excuse to Tamar and he told her that his son is too young for marriage and asked Tamar to wait for him to get older. Actually, the scripture tells us that he's avoiding what he knew was right to do. After experiencing the death of his two sons, Judah is now faced with the death of his wife. After a time of grieving, he decided to join a friend and travel to where the sheep were being sheared. Sheep shearing time was payday, when the money flowed freely, when the party began. Tamar became aware of his travel plans and she was tired of waiting, she's getting older, and she knew the son was deliberately being kept from her, so she decided that she would involve Judah himself. So she changed out of her widow's clothes and dressed like a prostitute and covered her face with a veil. She stationed herself at the roadway as Judah passed by and he became very interested in her. She insisted he leave his signet seal, his staff that the leader of a clan carried as payment until proper payment was received. Immediately, Tamar returned home, changed back into her widow's clothes again. Judah sent a servant with a goat as payment to her and to retrieve his belongings, but she was gone and no one knew who she was. Three months later, a rumor came to Judah that Tamar was carrying a child as a result of participating in prostitution. Judah was angry, demanded that she be publicly confronted and killed. And so Tamar was brought forward. She requested in her final moments to be able to identify the father of the child by his possessions that the man had left behind. And so Judah agreed. Immediately, he recognized the items and he knew what had taken place. And so he admitted his sin and said that Tamar was more righteous than he was because at least her motives were honorable. Twins were born to them. And we see in the genealogy that God continued the lineage of Jesus through Judah and their son Perez as the next in line. The second one we see is Rahab. And we find her story in Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6. The nation of Israel was located at the River Jordan, ready to cross over into the Promised Land. But there was a problem. The city of Jericho was waiting for them on the other side of the river, and it needed to be conquered if Israel was going to be successful. And so Joshua sent spies into the city, 
And the king of Jericho became aware that these spies were there and was searching for them. But the spies were hidden by a prostitute named Rahab, a Canaanite woman. When questioned by the king, she protected the spies and sent the king and his men searching outside the city for them. Her house was located within the city wall, so she lowered the men through the window by a rope. They promised to protect Rahab and her family when the city was destroyed. In chapter 6, Joshua honored that promise and brought Rahab and her family to live among them. Rahab's faith in God resulted in the deliverance of her family, and she later married a Jewish man named Salmon, and he too was in the lineage of Jesus. Thirdly, we see Ruth. The story of Ruth took place during the time of the judges. There were frequent famines linked to disobedience and invasions during this time. The story of Ruth began with an Israeli family, Elimelech, Naomi, their two sons, who temporarily relocated to Moab because of the famine. While there, Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. They both married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. In time, both of her sons died, and Naomi was left with two Moabite daughters-in-law. Naomi received information that the famine in Israel had ended, and she decided to return back home. She informed the two women of her decision and encouraged them to stay in Moab with their parents and their families. The custom of the time was for, as I mentioned earlier, the brother of the deceased to marry the widow, but since there weren't any more sons, they were free to move on. The likelihood of an Israeli man marrying a Moabite widow was minimal at best. And so Orpah decided to stay with her family in Moab, but Ruth insisted that she go with Naomi. Naomi decided to allow Ruth to return to Israel with her, and they both set out for Judah. Ruth ended up marrying Boaz, who was the son of Salmon, and Rahab, the former prostitute. And so she, too, became a part of the lineage of Jesus. The final one is Bathsheba. Second Samuel chapter 11, we find her story. Matthew refers to her as Uriah's wife. Uriah was a Hittite, not a Jew, and he was serving in David's army. While David's army was off at war, David was on the rooftop and saw Bathsheba bathing. He lusted after her and had her brought to him even though she was married, and she became pregnant as a result. To cover his sins, David brought Uriah home to be with his wife, so no one would suspect that David was the father of the child. But Uriah was loyal to the king and his fellow soldiers and refused to go home to be with his wife. So David arranged to have Uriah placed on the front line of battle and killed. David was now guilty of adultery and murder. Following Uriah's death, David married Bathsheba. He was repentant, but he did marry her, and they ended up having a son, Solomon, who carried on the line of Jesus. Now, since Matthew is writing to Jews, if there was a need to include women in the genealogy of Jesus, why not include the matriarchs such as Sarah and Rebecca, Leah or Rachel? If the purpose of Jewish genealogy was to demonstrate both moral and Jewish purity, why were four women who were either Gentiles or had Gentile connections included in the story?
some of whom had very sketchy pasts. Why would Matthew include them? Well, Matthew's purpose was to demonstrate to his readers that God's love was so inclusive that Jesus was born to be a savior for all people. And even though these four women who were outsiders, some even with questionable past, their faith in God invited them into God's story. Secondly, we see the Magi. Matthew continues with this theme in chapter 2 when he reports the story of the Magi. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, approximately 10 kilometers outside of Jerusalem during the reign of King Herod. Magi, or wise men from the east, had come to the city in search of the one who had been born the king of the Jews. Now the word magi comes from the root of the word magic. They were of Persian nationality, and they were an interesting group. They were scholars and scientists, yet they were involved in astrology, magic, and sorcery. They believed that people were born under the stars. A spectacular star meant the birth of a spectacular person. These magi were following the eastern movement of a very bright star and were determined to find out who this person might be. They had packed their belongings, their supplies, their gifts, and took their animals and servants, forming a caravan. They were captivated by this star. They studied prophecy. They studied scripture. They interviewed people. They were knowledgeable. And so they came to the conclusion that this star must be announcing the birth of the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews. And so they were obsessed with their quest and it became their passion and months passed on their journey. The star led them to Jerusalem because, well, when they got there, they expected to find the king in the nation's capital. They were told the prophecy and the prophecy said that the king would actually not be born in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. The star reappeared and they followed it to Bethlehem, where it stopped over a house where Jesus was staying with his family. They entered the house with great excitement. These wealthy, prestigious, respected men bowed to this child king. And then they presented him with the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were royal gifts commonly given to kings. Herod, the current king of the Jews, wanted only to kill this newborn king. The religious leaders, although familiar with all the prophecies, were unmotivated by the quest of the Magi. They didn't really care. In Jewish law, there was a penalty for astrology, and the penalty was death. How ironic that God invited these foreign astrologers into his story because they were drawn to their wonder of God, while the king and the religious experts were left out of the story. There are two observations that I would like to draw from our scripture today. The first is privilege. God in his great mercy and grace has invited us, you and me, all of us, into his story to experience his grace and mercy in our lives. It's a privilege to be invited into God's story We've not earned the right to be there. We don't deserve to be there. But because of his love, we are invited in. And I'm very happy about that. 
He invites those whose hearts are tender to the things of God, who are drawn to the wonder of his love, those who desire to have God in their lives. God's story includes those who are flawed, who are broken, who have failed, who've been hurt, who have made significant mistakes, who have been betrayed, who have betrayed others, who've experienced deep losses, those who are struggling, those who are sick, those who are tired, those who've been rejected, and those whose lives seem to lack purpose, those who lack hope, and those who don't know where to turn or what to do. Perhaps you can relate to one of those. God's story includes those who appear to not belong, yet want to belong. Those who are searching and willing to respond to his invitation to come. We don't earn our way into his story through our years of service or through our biblical knowledge or by putting on a spiritual facade or the positions that we might hold. We must see our place in God's story as a privilege because we know that outside of the grace of God, we would never be included. And so secondly, inclusion. The people that we have considered in our scripture today were not included as remote, disconnected details of God's story. They are specific examples of the overriding theme of God's message, a desire for all of us to experience the overwhelming love of God that has come to all of us. For each of us to receive God's best gift, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, that's his desire. By including these so-called outsiders in the gospel account, Matthew has given us real-life illustrations of the love of God for all people. And even though our culture appears to be going in the wrong direction, the truth is people are spiritually open and they're searching. Many are on a spiritual journey and are passionately pursuing things to satisfy their spiritual searching. In many ways, they are like the Magi, unlikely candidates to be searching, but they are desperate for answers. As followers of Jesus, we must ensure that we extend God's love to all who are searching so that they, like us, can experience the overwhelming and inclusive love of God. So in conclusion this morning, I would like to remind us all, we must see our place in God's story as a privilege because we know that outside of the grace of God, we would never be included. As followers of Jesus, we must ensure that we extend God's love to all who are searching so that they, like us, can experience the overwhelming and inclusive love of God. You see, the love of God is so inclusive that those who are deemed to be unworthy recipients are embraced and invited into God's story.
Thank you.